Good morning. Well, I cannot express to you how, uh, how encouraged, how excited I am to be here with you. It's been uh, a long time coming, uh, but I am just uh, thrilled to be here. In several ways, I can say it's really a dream come true. Um, I might get emotional this morning. I, I, I told several people here, uh, Tim Nichols being one of them, because I cried when I was with him. So I said, I'm an emotional person, so I'm, I might, uh, we'll, we'll see. But I wanted to introduce my family, some of which uh, is, is not here. Uh, little Peter went for the door. I guess he's bored of his father. But uh, Christina, my dear wife, is here. And uh, Jeremiah, our five-year-old. Uh, little Maria, our three-year-old. And then Peter is 10 months. And, so, uh, and then my sister Valerie is here to, uh, to mainly keep Peter under control. But uh, we, we are glad to be here. My grandma, good, and, and this was... Oh, thank you. My grandma, good, and this was interesting. I was speaking to a, a lady who knew my parents, or knew my grandparents, uh, Louis and Helen Good. Uh, my, my grandma, good, lived in Lidditz for many years along Route 501, and we would go to grandma's house, and just it was a great blessing when she was still living. But she told me some, uh, many years back, someday you are going to be a preacher, and, uh, and for close to 10 years, I have felt strongly to be just that, a preacher and teacher of God's word. I originally did not want to go into student ministry, which is what I've been doing for the past seven years. Uh, and I told Christina in our, in our kitchen at the seminary, I raised my hand, I will not go into student ministry, and that is exactly where God had me, really to produce much growth in me, which I am very thankful for. Uh, he he uh, taught me many leadership lessons and, and all different types of pastoral things that you get uh, without being the senior top dog, so to speak, and uh, I am thankful for that time. I've worked with some great, great people at North Park Church in Pittsburgh. We love Lancaster County. We are glad to be here. We come back on a regular basis, uh, mostly over Christmas, and take vacation time here. So uh, we hope that God is calling us back here. We both have a tough job this morning. We are here to worship the Almighty God, and yet you are here in part to evaluate me and uh, to discern whether I'm biblically qualified and whether I'm a fit for Jerusalem. Pastor Tim's recent series on biblical leadership, I believe, will be very, very helpful to you uh, to test me and to see if, if I am right here. And I understand the challenge that you have before you because not many years ago, we were in the same spot at North Park Church bringing in uh, our pastor, our current pastor now. So I, I want to thank, before I get started here, Tim and Esther, and, uh, and just thank and praise the Lord. Here I go. <laughs> I don't always get emotional when I preach, but um, for the faithful servants that they are, and you should be thankful to have uh, them here. Um, uh, so I just, I say thank you uh, to God for them. And the leaders who we have had the great privilege to work with uh, through this time that have proven to be diligent to the task. It is no small task to do what they have been asked to do. And uh, I give glory to God for all the time and effort that the leaders had. I also have a tough job. This is intimidating. <laughs> um, 
I'm here to preach God's word, and I, I also want you to get a flavor of who I am as a man and, and as a husband and father and pastor in such a short time. And I'm sure that you have expectations of me. Uh, some I may exceed, and uh, I am sure I will fail on some, but God's grace is at work. And God has graciously given me gifts for ministry and preaching and teaching, uh, but I also have very clear weaknesses and, uh, and that's what makes grace sweet, because God works amidst our weaknesses. I tried to pick a topic that defines my life, one that compels me as a man and a husband and a father, a theme that runs through my preaching and teaching and leadership and pastoral ministry, really all of my life, even a, a theme foundational to the Bible. These truths have changed my life. They have enriched my joy in Christ, and I hope this morning that my heart can come through. Uh, behind my desire to be your pastor is a greater desire to live for the glory of God wherever He leads me. That is my heart. That is why I'm here. There is an outline in your bulletin with lots of Scripture. We're going to cruise right through it, uh, but I hope that's a helpful aid in listening. So let's pray as we get into this all-important work of preaching and listening, and yes, even evaluating. Let's pray. Father God, we are here for your glory. This worship service is for your glory. And thus far, God, we have been enjoying and rejoicing in the truth. And so may the Holy Spirit be with us now. And lead us in the truth and lead us with passion and enthusiasm for the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What is the glory of God? Glory is a massive word. And what does 1 Corinthians 10.31 mean? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What is the glory of God? Well, one of the words used for glory in the Old Testament is kabod, and it can mean different things depending on context, like a lot of, lot of words. One meaning is the abundance of riches, wealth, and splendor. Think of the treasuries of, of King Solomon and the affluence of the Rockefellers or Bill Gates. Glory is the magnificence of wealth. Kabod can also mean honor or dignity given to something or honor that comes with a high position. When something has glory, it is important. It is significant. Glory is greatness. Glory can also mean of honorable character and reputation. Imagine that the virtuous judge walks into the courtroom and the bailiff says, All rise. The Superior Court of Lancaster County, State of Pennsylvania, is now in session. The Honorable Judge presiding, honor, character. Another word for glory is kabade or heaviness, hard manual labor. The callous producing labor is kabade. It is heavy. But kabade is not only burdensome, but weighty and serious, very reverent and great. Exodus 24 recounts Moses meeting with God on Mount Sinai when he received the law. And Moses writes in verse 17, Now the appearance of the glory, the kabod of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. 
a white, hot, consuming flame blazing in the sight of the people. The glory of God is fierce and beautiful, even extreme. Fire is an amazing thing. Uh, Isn't it beautiful and dangerous all at the same time? I mean, sometimes we just sit, whether it be at a, a fire outside, a fire pit, or in your living room, and we just gaze at it because it's captivating. It's beautiful. One spark of it could set the whole forest ablaze. And so we keep a safe distance and we try to contain it. What about a fire that you can't contain? Fierce and beautiful, such is the glory of God. Ezekiel the prophet mentions the brightness of the glory of the Lord. The light of God's being is extraordinarily bright. When I was in college, a few of us, we hiked back to this uh, old quarry. We probably shouldn't have been there, but we went anyway. And uh, there was a ledge in this quarry that dropped down about 20 feet, uh, as I remember it, to the water. And you might see where this is going. There wasn't a large runway, not a lot of space. Uh, But if you got enough speed, you could clear this small bush and plummet down to the icy cold water. All right. Now, the first time that you're considering whether to jump off of that quarry, there are some things going through your head. Is this a good idea? Um, This is awesome. I'm glad we're here. Is this a good idea? What if we don't clear the bush? What if there are rocks beneath the surface of the water? Is this a good idea? Do I hear an ambulance coming? Um, So in that moment, what are you considering? You are weighing fear and danger along with the desire for exhilaration and joy. You want to jump, but you're scared. And at a certain point, the risk becomes less important than the promise of thrill. So you just jump. And what makes the experience impressive, what makes it memorable, is the combination of both fear and danger with exhilaration and joy. It wouldn't be thrilling if it were completely safe. And so it is with the glory of God, this beautiful medley of severity and weightiness with beauty and joy and exhilaration. He is splendid, yet intimidating. He is magnificent, yet overwhelming. The word for glory in the New Testament is doxa, where we get the term doxology. And I'm glad that we, I love the doxology. I'm glad we sang that. Think of the brightness of the sun giving light and heat to the earth. The glory of God is the radiance or the brightness of God. He emits the light of his perfection. His glory is the brightness of his love, the brightness of his grace, the brightness of his mercy and justice and wrath and patience and intensity and goodness and sovereignty and power and truth, and it goes on and on. I love what John wrote in Revelation 21. He paints a fascinating picture of the heavenly city and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb by its light will the nations walk the glory of God is so intense 
It is so bright that it gives light to the entire heavenly city. God blazes and shines through the lamp of His Lamb, Jesus Christ. And the nations walk beneath the brightness of His glory. God is light, John writes. And in Him is no darkness at all. And this brings us to the person of Jesus Christ. In Him, we see the radiance of the glory of God. God came to us. He visited us in the flesh, revealing Himself to us in His Son, who lived with us and ate with us and walked with us and laughed with us and fulfilled the law perfectly for us. Jesus is the brightness of God. John told us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth are inseparable from the glory of God. It is intense. One day we we will see His power and His glory when Jesus comes back and sits on His throne. Hebrews 1.3 tells us Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He doesn't reflect the light of God. Jesus is the light of God, shining the fullness of God. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.6 that in the very face of Jesus Christ is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Hebrews 1.3 also says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. One commentator said it this way, the Son is the perfect representation of God's being. Jesus said, I and the Father are one, and whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Look to Jesus and see the glory of God. When Jesus performed his first miracle of turning the water into wine at the wedding at Cana, John 2.11 says that Jesus manifested his glory through the miracle. The miracle made the glory of Jesus visible. In other words, it revealed his power and command over the universe, his divinity, his love and concern for the wedding family and guests. In Hebrews 2.9, we read that Jesus, because of the suffering of his death, is crowned with glory and honor. The glory of God is revealed in the blood-soaked cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That is spectacular. The Son of God has always had glory. His glory is eternal. So we ask the question, what then is the glory of God? And the glory of God is the light of His perfection, the brightness of His character and worth, the severity and intensity of His nature. And we see the glory of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. How can you capture God's honor, His weight, His majesty and radiance in a word? Glory, glory. Well, many people, they consider in their own lives this question of, why am I here? What is my purpose? Why do I exist? Uh, Have you ever wondered why God exists? What is the chief end of God? What is His purpose? And the Bible gives us an absolutely stunning answer. It 
It is an answer that has revolutionized my faith. It's revolutionized my family and my pastoral ministry. This answer is really, really precious to me. Here's the answer. God exists to glorify himself and enjoy his glory forever. God exists to glorify himself and enjoy his glory forever. The purpose of God is the glory of God. Here's what the Bible says on this. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. Because he is Yahweh, he does not share his glory. Nothing in the universe is worthy of it. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. No one is like our God. Our God is absolute and sovereign and there is none like Him. Paul writes in Romans eleven thirty six: For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. God made the universe for His glory. 1 Chronicles 29, 11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is Yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. God is exalted as head above all because everything is His. He sustains every molecule of the universe by the simple word of His power. Even the purpose of Jesus, God's Son, is God's glory. Leading up to the cross, Jesus said significant words about himself. He said in John 12, 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Then he says in verses 27 and 28, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The cross, the death of Jesus Christ in the place of sinners was to display the fantastic glory of God. Christ's highest purpose was to exalt his Father in heaven and in the cross be exalted. Paul says in Uh, of Jesus in Colossians 1, 15 and 16, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him. And the key phrase, for Him. For Him. That is powerful Jesus is God visible and he created everything. And when Paul writes, um, all things were created for him in verse 16, what is he talking about? I believe Paul means that everything in heaven and on earth, the things that we can see, the things that we can't see, science, history, math, language, business, is for the glory of Jesus Christ. Now you might be thinking, wait doesn't this make God arrogant Uh, is he really good if he is self-centered and I think that's a good question consider this the world record sprinter Usain Bolt he is Jamaican you might have seen him in the last uh, Olympics when he was competing and uh, he is phenomenally fast 
He is a great sprinter. This is what he said of himself. I am the greatest athlete to live. I am a living legend. Bask in my glory. Now, uh, he is really good. He is really fast. But bask in his glory? I don't think so. Um, He's arrogant. I mean, that's a fair statement. Here's why we can't accuse God of the same arrogance. Bear with me here. Jim Thorpe is probably the, the best athlete to ever live. You could make a case for that. Besides playing professional baseball and professional football, he competed in the 1912 Olympics and outperformed everyone taking two gold medals, one in the pentathlon and one in the decathlon, a total of 15 track and field events. Incredible athlete. With Jim Thorpe in mind, Sally Jenkins, who is a sports columnist, wrote about Usain Bolt's lofty comments about himself. This is what she writes, quote, If you want to bask in glory, bask in this. Thorpe competed in 15 events and won eight of them, despite losing his track shoes and competing in a mismatched pair, running on a cinder track in a slogging rain. He still turned in a time of 11.2 seconds in the 100-meter dash, which wouldn't be equaled until 1948. He ran the 1500 twice. The second time he ran it, after nine decathlon events in two days, he turned in a time of 4 minutes 40.1 seconds that would stand up as the best by a decathlete until 1972. It stands up even now, 100 years later, against athletes with the finest shoes, training, and technology End of quote. My point is this. Like Usain Bolt, if we give glory to ourselves, imperfections and all, we must always consider that someone else was better. A step further, anytime the creation claims glory for itself, it all, it's always in the shadows of the creator's greater glory. So instinctively, we sense that something is wrong with self-attributed glory when there is a greater glory to behold. Can the clay look at the potter and say, I am more glorious than you? What could be more worthy of glory than God? As the supreme being, if God shared his glory, it would betray the supremacy of his being. It is good for God to act according to his own glory because there is nothing of equal or higher worth than him. He is supreme over all. One of my heroes, John Piper, writes it like this. God is the one being in the universe for whom the highest virtue is self-exaltation. When we exalt ourselves, there is always a higher virtue for us, namely the exaltation of God. But for God, there is no higher virtue. Uh, There is no higher being to give glory to. But you still might be thinking, okay, but God saves us, and doesn't he do so because he is most concerned about us? Well, God is greatly concerned for us because he loves us. He loves us, but his love for us does not supersede or replace his ultimate concern for his own glory. His love for us is part of his glory, for his greatness is on display in his love for us. Let me show it to you from Scripture. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God wipes out the sins of his people 
for his own sake. This is made even clearer in Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profane? My glory I will not give to another. Why does God extend grace to you? Why does he save sinners? Why does he pull us out of the mess? Because in our salvation, his glorious grace is on display for his praise. Psalm 106 tells us God saved Israel from Egypt for the sake of his name to show his power. Ezekiel says God acted for the sake of his name. 1 Samuel 12, 22 says God will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Ephesians 1, 5, and 6 say that God lovingly predestined us to the praise of his glorious grace. In Exodus 9 and Romans 9, God used Pharaoh to display his power and so that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. And Romans 16, 27 and Jude 1 say, only God deserves glory forever. All throughout scripture, you see one common theme. All throughout, unto the glory of God of the Almighty God. God works all things for His glory. If this is not true, for what higher purpose does God exist? To make much of us? Are we more worthy than God to be exalted? The glory of God is what unlocks for us the highest purpose for our own lives, the highest joy that we could possibly experience. His glory answers two huge and fundamental questions for us. One, why do I exist? Why am I here? And two, how can I find joy? How can I be happy? This brings us to what is the chief end of man? The famous Westminster Shorter Catechism question one asks the question, what is the chief end of man? Or why do I exist? And the answer given is profound. Man's chief end is is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, For us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That is good news. God made us for Himself. God says in Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, Bring my sons from afar. And my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And when God redeems us by the cross of Jesus Christ, Zephaniah 3.17 is true of us, that he will rejoice over us with gladness. He will quiet us by his love. He will exalt over us with loud singing. This is not narcissism. This is love. God's expression of love in his glory. God loved us so much that he gave us the riches of his mercy and grace and love and favor and adoption. Ephesians 2, 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So that, let's pause right there. Why does God give us mercy? Why does God give us grace and love and life and an inheritance? 
Paul tells us, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In grace, in the cross, in his son Jesus, God puts his display of his glory for all to see. When desperate sinners, dead in their sin, come through Jesus Christ, God's give, God gives them life. And he does it to show the limitless riches of his kindness and favor and grace. He gets the glory. We get eternal joy. That's a great deal. Why do we exist? We exist for the glory of God. That's why you're here. And when we mess it all up, when we rebel against God, when we go our own way, he pursues us with his grace and redeems us through the cross of Christ. He frees us from slavery to sin so that we may live as men and women in freedom. In freedom. His glory, our joy. How do we respond to this? How do we get really practical? Uh, how do we live out 1 Corinthians 10.31 together? A couple of things to consider and then I'll, then I'll be finished. Number one, fear God. God's glory should lead you to fear him. How did the shepherds respond to the manifestation of the glory of God in Luke 9? When the glory of the Lord shone, they were filled with fear. In Acts 12, 23, Herod Agrippa was killed by an angel of the Lord because he did not give glory to God. He took it for himself. God is very, very serious about his glory. He will get it. So we must fear him. Secondly, we must trust him. Do you trust Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Or are there some other things that you're trusting in? Things that will ultimately fail you. Jesus Christ comes through, so trust him. When sinners humbly confess and turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, they glorify God. Jesus said to Martha at the death of her dear brother Lazarus, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. If you believed, you would see it. Believe in Jesus Christ, church, so that you can see the power of God making dead things alive. Three, trust in the sovereignty of God. This is so precious to me. God has a plan, and he's working it out in the world. In John eleven four, Jesus said that Lazarus' illness illness of all things was for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through the illness though disease is a direct result of the fall of man and the sinfulness of man it nonetheless is for the glory of God do you believe that everything happens for a reason that everything in your life is is put there for a very specific purpose even suffering that God will use it for his own glory that, that gives me peace to know God will do that. Four, treasure God. Is God more valuable to you than comfort or pleasures in this life? Do you suffer in such a way that people see that it is clear to you that you enjoy God more than comfort, more than wellness, more than money or power or influence? Is that clear? For Paul, suffering was nothing compared to the glory of God. Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Fifth, enjoy God. 
Jerusalem church enjoy God? Do you enjoy your relationship and your fellowship with the God of the universe and with his son, Jesus Christ? Is your heart filled with pleasure in God that it leads you to praise? One of my favorite quotes is, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. God is not glorified when you joylessly gut it out and obey the scowl on your face and no joy. He's not glorified in that. He's glorified when you treasure him most and follow him with gladness. The multitude in heaven of Revelation 19.7 cries out, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. The exult is with a U, not an A. So it would read like this, let us rejoice and be extremely happy and give him the glory. Lastly, produce for God. Prove your love for God by happily serving others. Now, produce for God is a certain ring to it that I want to clarify. It is by grace that we produce. You don't somehow earn God's approval by doing good works. That's not how it works. But when God gives you his favor and you live out those good works unto his glory, we should be producing as Christians by his grace and the Spirit's leading in us. John 15, 8 says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Go to work for God by grace, through faith, produce. Do it all in the name of Jesus so that people know where to give the glory when they see your life. They know the glory should go to Christ. Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Is the glory of God shining through your life? Is it bright? Is it dim? Where are you at with Jesus? I believe Jerusalem church will thrive when its people enjoy God and live in such a way that they show by their lives that God is their most valued possession. You will shine more treasure than anything else. Their God is. God is glorified when the world sees that we savor and treasure Jesus Christ above everything. Why did Jerusalem church come to be in 1727 and last for over 285 years? Why have you been searching for a pastor? Why did God bring Pastor Tim and Esther here to carefully and skillfully lead you through this transition time? Why is the Holy Spirit at work here? Why am I here this morning? What is the purpose of your vote next Sunday? A vote that I hope goes in the positive. Let's play a little politics. Please vote for me. Vote for me. Uh, God has that under control. Why has God saved you and brought you here today? Why does God promise you an incredible future in the gospel? What other answer is there than for the glory of God? God is showing his greatness and grandeur through all of this. All of this. He's just shining. And uh, we get to participate in the most intriguing, compelling mission, exciting mission on planet earth to enjoy the almighty God and to proclaim his excellencies to the entire world. Let's pray. Father, you are good. We love you. 
And I pray that your glory is seen through the cross of Jesus Christ all throughout Mannheim, all throughout Lidditz, all throughout the surrounding towns, through Pennsylvania and through the United States of America and through the world. Uh, God, you are glorious and we give all the praise to you for no one else deserves it. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the peace and the hope and the comfort and the joy and the exhilaration that we have in the gospel. And I pray that you continue to move in this blessed church, Jerusalem Church. In Christ's name we pray.